Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I talk to Egan, a fellow entrepreneur who I met in the Dynamite Circle, who has read a lot about the theory of mind. Enjoy. Egan, thank you for being here with me today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. Um, as is custom, I will introduce who you are through my eyes, and then you can do the same for me. So Iga and I have met each other through the Dynamite Circle, which is a community for online entrepreneurs. And in that community, we have this habit of creating masterminds where a small group of people get together to help each other with their entrepreneurial ideas and problems. And so I've been in quite a few of these masterminds now, but there's only one that has always continued. And that's the one with Egan and Kenton. And I've always enjoyed them very much. So I thought, why not invite Egan, who is kind of like from a different group of people in, in my friends, you know, um, as an entrepreneur, as a fellow um, introvert, uh, I know very little about Egan. I mostly know about his work, but I believe Egan to be someone who cares about people and how he relates to them. So I am very curious in this conversation to dive deeper into who Egan is and how he relates to himself. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. I'll, should I try to do an intro for you here? Please. So what I know about Hoakim is he's a very skilled and seasoned entrepreneur. And from what I gather, he's sort of moved on to other parts of life that he's very good at the, the making money part of life. And he's not stressed out about that. And he's really um, self-actualizing in other ways. And um, he's into all kinds of very interesting and one might say exotic alternative lifestyles. I know that he's into ecstatic dancing and potentially alternative romantic partner arrangements too, if that's a fair summary. Beautiful. Yeah. Sounds, sounds accurate. Okay. Egan, um, where shall we start? Well, I, I like to start always with the title of the podcast, right? So relating to self, what comes up for you when you hear that? Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to take us off the rails and make this a disaster for you. <laughs> Thanks. I have an intense um, skeptic in my mind, maybe on my shoulder. And I kind of wonder if it's if I get that from my dad or something, or if maybe it even is the voice of my dad. And so I have skepticism about it of like, if I delve into this and think about it, like, am I like self-indulgent in some way? Like, I'm wondering that. But then at the same time, also high on trait openness, as they say, on the this 
personality assessment called the ocean big five that are supposedly, you know, the, the big traits that people talk about and notice about you. And so on an assessment of that, I'm 100 out of 100 on openness. I really enjoy abstract art and films and conversations, I suppose. So that's what, that's what draws me to it. That's what at least makes me open to exploring it, I guess. So, so would you say that you're, you're skeptical about this whole concept of what it means to be relating to yourself, but you're so open that you're happy to talk about that skepticism with me? Yes. Yeah. And if you're okay to have me on to question everything you're doing right now, then that's, that's okay. That's amazing. I think that's a wonderful perspective to have. We haven't had that on the podcast before. So I love it. I have a question about the skeptic. So you say it's the voice of your father, I think, or it could be the voice of your father. I think that's a really interesting point. And that's something that comes back quite often in these conversations about relating to self. It's this concept of having different parts of ourselves that we speak to right? and different parts of ourselves that speak to us. And these kind of like inner voices, like the inner critic. And well, I imagine I want to ask you is that if, if your skeptic is perhaps also your inner critic, would you define that that's correct? Yes, definitely. I think yeah. as, as I was thinking about being on this, you know, I've, I, I realized that maybe my default is skeptical and critical like that. I know people talk about self-talk and sort of what's the, what's the voice in your mind? That's what, what are you saying to yourself? What are you saying when you talk to yourself? And I had a, a memory of, I think I was seven years old. I was in my, um, parents bathroom brushing my teeth and there was this voice criticizing me about how I was doing it or I should have done it earlier in the day or something along those lines and I, I became cognizant of it like I, I'd had it before but there was this moment where I'm a seven-year-old brushing my teeth and I'm just like wait who are you and like why are you criticizing me and that was that was a very strange moment I've, I've never I don't, I don't know what to make of that and I, I wouldn't say I've solved that problem by any means but it, at least I confronted it and became aware of it and so maybe that's where the conversation starts for me is who is that voice and should i is there value there should i take that seriously i don't know and even even beyond that i wonder if at this point in my life like i have assumptions that are even pre-verbal about that of maybe the, the criticism has happened for so long or that this self-doubt and criticism that even without words, that is my assumption of what am I doing and why and can I trust myself? I think that's so interesting. Um, well, there's two things there, right? There's one, I think I've never encountered anyone before who became aware of that inner critic at seven years old while brushing their teeth. So I think that's quite exceptional. And the second thing that really strikes me is this idea of the pre-verbal, the self-doubt that exists even before you hear that voice. And indeed, yeah, the, the, the question there is, as you point to, do I trust myself? And then the question becomes also, which part of myself do I trust? Because, you know, all these things are inside of you. So I'm, I'm really interested to know how your relationship is with that voice that you could call the skeptic or the inner critic. How do you, how do you have this conversation with that voice in say, you know, daily life while running your business, for example? I think in, in talking with you about it and just thinking about it now, I, I feel like I almost defer to it and I assume that it is right. That, that 
critical, maybe leaning, you know, definitely leaning negative stance is about the right way to approach the world and appraise oneself and and others as well. You know, I think there's judgment externally and then like no one else is around. Okay, I'm judging me now or something. <laughs> and if that if that is me or if that's a like you say, that's a part of me, that's the judge basically. Right. The, the judge and the critic. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very accurate. Has there been any point where you maybe doubted that voice? Because you say you kind of like assume that it's correct. Has there never been a, a moment where he was like, wait, wait a second. I hear you, inner critic, but what you're saying might not be accurate. Yeah. And the doubt is maybe circular in that sense, too, of do I like do I trust this doubt, this inner doubter? I don't know. Um, this, I, I apologize if this is like totally high flown and hard to. No, this is this is gold. This is yeah. This is wonderful. I think this is very relatable. I mean, I I don't remember when I became aware of the voice of my inner critic, or this in in my case, it's you know my mother's voice. Um, and I know how I relate to it now, and it's still there, obviously. And that's something that always comes back, also in the conversations I have, is that I believe that relating to that voice is a practice. It is something that we continuously have to engage with. It's not something you can just deal with and then it's gone. That voice, I believe, is part of who we are in some way. And so learning to navigate the relationship with that voice and all the other voices is kind of what relating to self is all about. I want to also say something more about the, the pre-verbal stuff, because I think that's really juicy. Um, from my perspective, I think a lot of stuff happens in the subconscious, right? A lot of stuff happens before we are aware of it, before we can vocalize it. And I have no doubt that a part of the inner critic or that voice also exists in our subconscious. So the question then to you would be, when contemplating that pre-verbal part of your self-doubt, do you feel that it is something that has been put into you by relating to, for example, again, your father? Or do you see that as something else? I do wonder if I've developed it, like maybe I've practiced it, which is a strange thing of practicing subconscious pre-verbal beliefs. But the, there is this sort of negative tone to it. And then I basically, I, I got into, we'll call it Western intellectual history. That's kind of what I liked in college. And I thought I was going to be a professor for a while. And so there's... Professor in what? Of... of um, thought basically of like intellectual history. That's like, that's what I really liked. And so that, that, that influenced and changed me. So we'll say throughout my twenties, I suppose. I'm, I'm mid to late thirties now. I'll be 37 in July. Mm. And I'm really curious how, how that like engaging with that very specific idea of like, you know, Western intellectual history. Is there anything in that history that talks about relating to self in some way? Was there any concept that is related? Because I am not well versed in, you know, the history of thought in general. So I would love to know from someone who has studied this, like, um, was there anything there? Yeah. And feel free to, have, I, I don't know if you're going for, let's keep this personal or let's, let's be abstract. I think I gravitate toward the abstract, but I'm, I'm open to being brought back to the personal. What comes to mind immediately is even Freud civilization and its discontents, and I think I think that's where he lays out 
id, ego, and superego. But for our purposes, the larger idea there is you have you have whatever nature you have. You have your drives and so forth. And then that's basically unruly in a society. And so those need to be clamped down on in some respect. You can't just run rampant with your hunger or violence or sexual impulses or something. And so that gets controlled. And then maybe originally those are, again, parents, teachers, authorities telling you, you got to control yourself. You can't just like fly off the handle with your urges. And at some point that gets internalized. And as I understand it, that's the superego. And obviously this is over a hundred years ago, people sort of see Freud is out of favor now. And but I think it's right to say that we have internalized the things that Freud was right about, particularly the unconscious. Here we are talking about our unconscious feelings and you know thoughts and desires and so forth. Um, that that largely comes from him, and so we we've accepted that piece, and then we find some of the other weird sexual stuff just weird and sexual, I guess. But that that piece is a is a is a big realization, and we we haven't exactly figured out what to do with it or, or our way out of it. And so there's something, there's something in that that rings true for me. And I think if you're, I think if you're studying or even just thinking about it, like that makes sense. When you're a kid, you're kind of running wild and, and you're getting reined in if you have any sort of authority figures at all. And then at some point, the authority is then internal and that might be related to that, that voice or that critic. So would it be accurate to say that you believe that this inner critic that you have, the, the skeptic, as you called it, is actually related to this idea that Freud posits that your drives and urges need to be controlled. And does that inner critic of yours take that position? Yeah, I, partic- I, I wonder, I think now as an adult, that makes more sense. The fact that I told you that was when I was seven, mm. like, in general, that was pre-puberty like we're not talking about sexual urges in that case like that was very little things of like oh it's 11 a.m and you haven't brushed your teeth yet like that's kind of it was like at that level of maybe that sounds grooming or discipline or something that's like that's like what it was around then that almost sounds like something like the the norm idea you know there are certain norms that you need to adhere to um and at that age obviously that's kind of like expected because you don't have the value system and the cognitive capacity yet to be able to decide for yourself how you want to behave. So you need to follow others people's rules. But then I imagine um, in the process of maturing and becoming an adult, you kind of step out of that. You look at the system that you've been given, the norms and the inner critic that you were given as a child, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to keep certain parts maybe because they seem aligned with the values I have, but I'm also going to develop my own value system and then live according to that was that something that you went through as well yeah i think that that went hand in hand with studying intellectual history and and whatever in my 20s i think it was all it was all about questioning then and now in my mid to late 30s i'm i'm landing in this weird in between point and it's funny that we're talking now because i feel like even in the last few weeks or months like i'm changing and i i scarcely recognize myself so who who are you talking to? Is is a <laughs> from my perspective, that's a that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Um, that's a I, wonderful I think, question. I I definitely want to come back to that. But first, I want to share something that I've been talking about with my assistant actually, 
um, my assistant and I had had a small conversation about philosophy. Uh, she shared that she really enjoyed philosophy. And I shared that I used to read a lot of philosophy when I was in my 20s, but I don't anymore. And I started thinking about why that is. And I came to the conclusion or the insight really that the reason that I had when I was in my 20s to pursue reading philosophy was almost to numb myself from my own experience. You know, I was dealing with pain. I was dealing with questions. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what the purpose of this whole thing called life is, you know. And then instead of sitting with that, and instead of finding my own way, I thought I could find the answers in a book written by someone else hundreds of years ago. That didn't work out very well. So I wonder if, if that feels like something that you have experienced as well, of, or was your experience very different with that intellectual history? Yeah, I wonder. I think that's uh, the change that's happening in me recently is sort of wrapped around that. And I'm sort of swinging back in the other direction and thinking that, again, if, if everybody's just got to figure it out for themselves, then there almost is no civilization. Like there's there's got to be something stored in those dusty old books. And I know there's a lot of criticism and thoughts around that. But in general, that is still my larger disposition that there are a lot of people that have experienced human life before us and they've seen a lot and as different as those times were technologically and maybe politically. Um, there, there's a lot that still applies and there's a lot that will yet apply in our lives that we haven't gotten to yet. And I think that's, I think that's where it's changed for me where now I'm interested in wisdom and mm. before it was maybe ideas. And so, the, the pieces of the old, whatever old teachings or books or what have you that apply to us now, like I, I feel them more in my gut than in my 30s than I did in, in my brain, I guess, when I was in my 20s. I think that's a wonderful point. And I think I would agree. I think maybe if now I were to come back to those books I read when I was in my 20s, because in my 20s, I didn't really understand them anyway, right? It was just, it was just a way of like playing with ideas and words of other people. Um, now, like you say, I'm also more interested in the wisdom of that. Um, which brings me to my next question. How would you then define wisdom for yourself? Like what's the difference between pursuing knowledge in your twenties and now being interested in wisdom? Yeah, I think that's, that's maybe part and parcel of my skepticism here. And just like where you're finding me right now, I think. Wisdom almost applies to you at different ages as you age and as you change. And I think it also applies to the larger group. And so maybe some of my skepticism about, I said, maybe, you know, sometimes you ask people about self-love and things like that. Maybe that seems partly gratuitous to me because I wonder, have we swung so far in that direction? Basically, from the 1960s until now, I'm almost having, I'm almost having this like, <laughs> this weird conservative backlash in my mind that I, I almost don't even recognize myself basically, but I'm, I'm sort of taking that stand or at least I'm thinking through it alone here in my apartment <laughs> about it's, it's more, it's about more than just the individual. And if we swing so far in the direction of individuals fully developing themselves and whatever feels right to them, and we're, we're totally outside the realm of that 
that that wisdom that comes from potentially centuries before. Obviously, there's lots of there's a lot of bad things that come from centuries before that we don't want to continue. And so, how do you how do you sort that out? How do you pull out the wisdom from the the arbitrary conditions that were frankly oppressive for a lot of people and and things? But it's like, what are are, are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Basically, is kind of my question around that. And so, advice that is wise is is maybe not even just at the individual level. It may be a, maybe this doesn't work for you. Maybe this curbs your personal freedom, but it is good for the larger group. And that's something that we, I think we don't, we don't talk about much in the last 50 years. Yeah, I hear you. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about as well. I'm really interested in the concept of community and how we can reclaim the idea of living in smaller groups of people who can then support each other. Um, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, but have no answers for, because I, I truly feel that my, my situation as it is now as well, my, my life kind of misses that, right? Um, I have become very good at relating to myself because I have put a lot of energy and time into developing all the practices, the rituals, the routines that make me feel like I am in a good place with myself. I trust myself. I love myself. I give myself what we, what I need and so on. But then as you say, well, that's not what humans are, right? Humans are social creatures. There is a larger whole and there is a society around that. And how do we relate to that? Especially on the, on the smaller scale, I feel, because I think in, in general, from my perspective, on the larger scale, when you think about democracy as a concept for creating societies i can't really imagine anything else that would be better than than democracy so i think let's let's keep that but on a smaller scale when i think of my life in a big city or well a medium-sized city i guess if you look at it from a bigger perspective um it's not great it's not very connected i don't feel connected to the people around me and so i wonder when it comes to your thinking about that what have you implemented in your own life that changes that for you? Do you have a network of people around you close by that you relate to with a sense of community? Probably the short answer right now is no. I, I recognize how important that is. And I know we've talked a bit in the past of, I lived in a 29 person cooperative in, mm. in Minneapolis, Minnesota for three years. And so experienced some of that and kind of <laughs> I was I was done at the end I was ready to I was ready to leave it and one of the things I took away was that um, w when your home is a cooperative with people like that basically the personal is political I think that's that's true generally in larger society but when you're in a small group where we had Sunday night meetings and we had to decide how are we running this house and how are we running this place um, it really made politics local and um, I think there's an argument to be made that don't romanticize that too much. Part of politics is responsibility of you're, you're making decisions, you're hashing things out. Our Sunday night meetings took a very long time to make decisions. My brother came and visited me one time. It was like, your guys' meetings go two to three hours about all kinds of inanities. Like, why, why are you doing that? And it was just sort of like, the answer was democracy. And it's, did we need that much democracy about those little aspects of keeping the house? I don't know, but I've, I've, I, I bring it up because I've experienced that yeah. intense in close quarters and it's, 
it's probably different than the romanticized notion. People who are feeling very isolated on the other end of the spectrum might be feeling right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. And as you know, I, I was living in a community um, for about almost two months in, in Portugal earlier this year. And I, I hear you. I mean, this idea of how do you navigate the social common life? How do you make decisions? Um, how much do people want to be involved with these kind of systems of, you know, having meetings and all that kind of stuff? Those are really hard questions. But I would lo- like to come back to, to Egan, to you. And I wonder if there are any aspects of your relationship with yourself that are particularly difficult for you in this moment, perhaps now that you feel you're changing. Yeah, I think it's it's mostly difficulty for me. And I, I don't mean to say like I struggle or anything like that. It's just the now that you ask, it's sort of like, oh, yes, that is something I'm figuring out. I think recently as as this new Egan has emerged, it suddenly has this like intellectually conservative bent that I, I the old Egan doesn't even recognize. Um, something I wonder is just um, phases of life of if there's childhood, if there's adolescence, if there's adulthood, if there's old age, whatever, whatever those phases are, where am I at in those and why? And part of me feels like there was a very extended adolescence and that's just now coming to an end, even though I'm as old as I am. Mm, That's fascinating. Yeah. That's part of what's making the change. And so there's big questions around that or basically at some point I kind of got off on the, on the culture side of things. I thought like, I want to make music. I want to write books. I want to produce culture. And basically having a family could be inimical to that. Like that could, that could get in the way of those goals. And so that's not what my life's going to be about. And now it's, you know, now it's a decade plus later and I'm sort of questioning that. And I sort of see that a lot of culture that I criticized before or parts of particularly, you know, American politics and culture that seem alien or anathema to me. I understand now that those, those norms and expectations and sensibilities were built around families, having families. And because I wasn't on that track, it like wasn't for me and it didn't speak to me. And so of course I was critical of it. And so now at least like imagining what would it be to be a parent? What would it be? What would it feel like to have someone so vulnerable that relies so much on you and to bring them into a like a very uncertain world where a lot of scary things could happen to them? That that really changes you, I would imagine. And particularly, I imagine the experience changes you a lot more than just my imagining it. Yeah. Um, well, I can't say much about that because, as you know, I don't have children. Right. But I want to come back to what you said about producing culture. That seems fascinating to me because, well, as you know, I started out as a composer um, a long time ago. So I kind of like took the opposite path, I guess. I, I first went into this. Yes, I want to I want to produce culture. I want to produce music. I want to produce things that move people in a certain way. I want to create experiences for people. And well, that was a very interesting period of my life, certainly. And then when I changed that into, I want to create things that help 
people do things and maybe create things themselves, which was a very different perspective, but they're kind of related. Um, for me, the idea of entrepreneurship and being a creator of culture, um, they both speak to my creativity. They both quench that thirst that I have to, to make things. And so I'm curious about when, when you say, I want to bring culture into the world, um, is that something you're actually considering now in this change, this phase that you're in, or maybe the end of your adolescence? I think part of it is part of the shift is realizing that that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I've done per se. I tried, you know, I, I had a almost Don DeLillo style. I had like a night shift job where I wrote a novel. Um, you know, I played in bands and played music over the years and things. And just that was the dream, obviously, the 20s. And I think in, in my 20s, and I think for a lot of young people, it's like you see those and it's like, that's what I want to do. I want to I want to make music. I want to make books, whatever it is. I think what's challenging is that I'm accepting that maybe that is not my role in the world. Mm. Maybe I thought I was better at those things than I was, or I didn't, I didn't spend enough time on them to develop them, to do them full time. But at least in my mind now, it's like, regardless, it's sort of like, that's not my place. And maybe that's not what life's about. Mm. And so that's like, adolescent me would be sad about that but also like why do i care what adolescent me thinks when i'm supposed to be an adult now you know or am an adult or whatever yeah i think that's a beautiful example of relating to self you know you're you're speaking to yourself you're asking yourself questions maybe even from different time perspectives from the idea of like who is egan as an adolescent who is egan as an adult and the question that comes up for me when i hear that is who is egan becoming and for me, that question has an open answer. Um, and it's mostly a matter also of choosing a path. And so I, can, I think you can, you can now decide <laughs> whether you want to move into what you perceive as the more adult or mature Egan, or if you want to stay with what you currently have. So I'm curious if, are you in the process of making that choice? Or do you experience it more as something that is happening to you? I probably am in the process of making that choice, but I don't know if I'd thought of it as a choice until you asked it that way. I did, I did see it as this is happening. And, and there is, there is some bodily feeling. I think when I've made big changes in my life, things that I never thought I would do. And then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to get married or whatever it is. It's like something changed in my gut and I was used to living in my head. And so mm. when you just feel different, um, that element of it makes me feel like I'm, I'm pushed or compelled to go in this other direction. You, you mentioned that something changed and then you felt it in your gut, right? I think that's really interesting. I would love to know if you cultivate the, the gut feeling. Is that something that you try to explore or is it just something again that sometimes happens? I think I'm just now coming to respect it and and listen to it if that's the right metaphor and give it as much or more credence as whatever rational arguments there are i think if if you're living perfectly rationally but you're 
out of alignment with your gut, that's, mm. I don't think you're on a good path there. And I think that will catch up with you. And that's, it, you know, to some degree, that's been my experience where it kind of builds up and then it snaps. Yeah. And, and suddenly I'm different. And part of my challenge is, you know, I think we're kind of talking as individuals, but obviously we're embedded among our family and friends and so forth. And, uh, I think I've changed more in the last few months than probably the people around me realize yet. Wow, that's profound. I want to come back to that. But first, I would love to know more about this, the idea of the gut feeling and just now coming to, to listen to it, because I think that's really interesting. What you said about the alignment between the rational mind and, and the gut feeling. And if it's not there, then, you know, you will experience some kind of fracture of some kind. I couldn't agree more. I think alignment is one of the most important concepts that I have found for myself, you know, to, to have a good life. And I've also found that my, my rational mind, the storytelling mind, sometimes I call it, you know, it's, it's very good at coming up with stories about why things are the, the way they are or why I want certain things. But I realized that the stories can go either way. <laughs> the, the, the mind is very flexible and very good at creating these stories. So as soon as you start to follow more, well, the gut feeling, as you call it, or, you know, some kind of, I would call it maybe the inner voice of the adult, the, the more mature version of myself, then I feel that my, my narratives also shift and adapt to that quite easily. And I wonder if, if that's something that you're experiencing too right now. Yeah, I think that's certainly right. I, the, the way I, the reason I might hesitate to just say it's it's purely a choice, though, in that sense is, if I were to continue to choose whatever my old path was, it, it would, I would now be aware of it's not, it's not aligned with like my gut feeling of who I am now, and so I do I do feel compelled to move and change in that respect. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. speaking to what you're asking, but yeah, well, it's related. I, I think it's important also. But I want to ask you what you said before. You think you've passed in the past months, you've changed more than the people around you realize. That is, there's a lot of information there. Um, is it because you are still figuring it out for yourself and you want to not communicate about it too much before you kind of have a clear picture? Or is it just because they haven't caught up to what you have expressed already? probably more the former but there's mm -hmm. there's pieces of this now that are that are leaking out where i'm saying things and they're just like whoa this is, you've really changed like they're, they they will say things like that um i think i think the the shorthand version of it without getting too personal is just like the this vote for it's all about culture like culture is superior to just settling down and having children and i, I sort of grew up in this part of the united states that was very religious and people had big families and Life was kind of all about biology, if that makes sense. That's that was my perception of it. Of it's all about the genes or whatever, and I was like all about the memes. I was like, no, like culture matters just as much, if not more. And I'm kind of voting in that direction. And I actually think that's a big schism in society, at least in the U.S. And I, I, I don't know how it is in Europe. I guess. Um, of, people have a preference about that of which is more important. And many years ago, in some old dusty old bookstore in Minneapolis, I was like, 
in the basement digging through these old books. And I found one by this old, <laughs> some old, you know, conservative thinker from the 1950s or something, which who, who even reads this guy anymore sort of thing. And I just like, you know, kind of flipped to a page and it said something along the lines of basically, you know, intellectuals think life is about culture and ideas, but basically the core of life is about family and children. And basically the leftist intellectuals are like missing this piece. And that like, I had a number of moments like that where I would sort of listen to more conservative right-leaning philosophers or thinkers and that it would it would kind of strike me out of the blue because it was such a different way of talking and thinking than anything else i was reading along you know marxist and foucauldian sort of ideas i was i was off over in that world and then to just get this that's like from a totally different perspective it was basically even maybe even upsetting and offensive at the time but it's still stuck across me somewhere and so it's it's strange to feel myself turning toward that and maybe changing my mind about which is more important you know for me it feels something like i can agree that family is more important than it is seen you know in culture right now but for me then you know as a not conservative, I would say, right. um, the question would become like, what is family? And I think there I have quite non-traditionalist views. And I think the concept of family has been reduced to something very specific, whereas I think it originates in something like the tribe and something like the village where, you know, a certain group of people sharing resources to make sure everybody gets what they need more or less and is safe. And I think that idea, as we discussed in, in community, becomes more important to me uh, now that I'm at this stage in my life. But I would say I don't think it necessarily needs to be like the, you know, mother, father, two children, white picket fence and a dog kind of idea of, of family, which is often then, I believe, what conservatives kind of talk about when they say family. Right. Right. Yeah. I find myself in between on that. Like, I think, I think yeah. you're right. It's to me, it's still not the genetics that are important, mm -hmm. but it, there is there is something about it's have something in your life where it's not just about you, where you take some responsibility and you are, I think, like you kind of said, you know, you're you're helping other people. You're passing along yes. what abilities you have or what knowledge you have or yeah. whatever you're in some sense providing. I think that people probably do need that role to be a provider in some way for something or someone. Well, I guess in a, in a way you could say that me having this podcast is a way of doing that. It's a way of sharing something that I find valuable with a larger part of the world than just myself. Right. So in that sense, yeah, I tend to agree. Wow, what an interesting conversation, Egan, and very different to my former conversation. So I really like that. Thank you so much. I have, well, two more questions for you, really, before uh, we end the recording. Um, the first one would be, what is one question that you would have loved to receive from me? Hmm. Still building up that pool of questions, huh? 
<laughs> Always. Well, as you know, I think, you know, the quality of your questions determine the quality of your life. And a question is never meant to find an answer. A question is only meant to find a better question. Uh -huh. Here, I'll, t I'll try one. I was tr trying to think of this. And maybe you already asked this and I missed it. I'm just often in my own thoughts here. But something about is how would you like to change the way you relate to yourself? Mm -hmm. that, may, that may be on your list and you may have asked me that, but now I'm reflecting on that. Would you like to answer that question? Mm -hmm. I still have that skeptical piece where I'm not sure if this is the right path or not, but is there like is there a way for me to resolve and feel like yes, I can trust myself, I don't need to believe this inner critic. So is there a way? And then like should I of like those pieces mm. of if if someone I trust and like and respect, like you said, you know, like you know, you can like you can do this anytime you want like you have it within you to decide whether the critic should be listened to and then to do it or not well egan i believe that at any point you have the power to decide whether or not your inner critic is speaking truth and whether you should follow its advice thank you i hope i didn't put words in your mouth too much there <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though i do believe that and then my very last question would be if there is anything that you would like to share with the audience or you know where they, people can find you can we follow your thoughts somewhere are you on twitter whatever it is that you want to impart yeah i think the thing i put out there is this is maybe a left turn, but just sort of morning routines. Probably the best thing I've done in the last few years is really get serious about my morning routine. And by serious, I mean actually have one and actually do it. And so for me, that means I get up and I exercise and read and meditate and journal. And for you, it can mean whatever, whatever would, I guess, fill you up, I suppose. And then I, I mark it off on a calendar so I, I can. I can see a huge wall calendar here in my office and I just check off each thing I do every day. And there's something gratifying about, you know, completing a checklist like that. But that's, that's probably the best thing I've done for myself in the last many years is don't wake up and go right into whatever your duties are. Mm. Spend some time to think and, and get yourself right and then go into that world of duties. I couldn't agree more. That's a beautiful message to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Egan, for being here. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Hogan. Ciao. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>